0: Chasing Leviathan is a podcast about pursuing truth, one big question at a time through the discipline of listening. Truth is too big to tame, but if we pay close attention, we might get the chance to glimpse something truly magnificent. So please join me in this pursuit one week. at. welcome to Chasing Viathan. I'm your host, PJ Weary, and I'm here today with Dr. Mark Roach, the Reverend Edmund P. Joyce Professor of German Language and Literature and Professor of Philosophy at Notre Dame. We're talking about his book today, Beautiful Ugliness, Christianity, Modernity, and the Arts. Dr. Roach, wonderful to have you on today.
1: Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm pleased to be here.
0: So first question, uh, why this book? Why, what prompted you to start this project, and where did the project take you?
1: Yeah. Uh, well, there were several reasons. Uh, one is uh, I view ugliness as one of three signature elements of modern art and literature. Uh, another signature element is self-reflection. Uh, you see it in the obsession with art about art. Uh, whether it's German Romanticism, Pirandello, Thomas Mann, Bertolt Brecht, Fellini, Woody Allen, etc. And uh, the second is technology and industrialization, which become prominent themes in modernity and, of course, also affected various art forms. The invention of photography and film come out of technology. And the third is ugliness. There is a (laughs) a dominant thread in modernity, where artists are obsessed with either repugnant content, uh, dissonant forms, uh, clashes between form and content, parts and holes that don't integrate, uh, using shock as a strategy uh, to attract and simultaneously upset viewers. So ugliness was, uh, for me, a signature element of modernity, but I was surprised how little Analysis theories of ugliness. There is uh, really only one monograph on ugliness, and it it's from the 19th century from a follower of Hegel called Karl Rosenkrantz, who in 1853 wrote An aesthetics of ugliness, uh, and he tries to analyze the different forms of ugliness. And this work, while translated into many languages uh, over time, was not translated into English until 2015. So there isn't a lot of literature on the topic. And when I wrote a book about comedy and tragedy, I uh, was reading the theories of comedy by Hegel's followers. And I noticed something that surprised me at the time, that the uh, dominant two categories for the followers of Hegel were the ugly and the comic. And they were related. And it was one thinker after another. These are forgotten thinkers. Arnold Ruger, uh, Friedrich Theodor Fischer, Christian Weiser, Kuno Fischer, Mark Schassler, and of course Rosenkranz. And I realized they had some interesting insights. And uh, my field, as you said at the outset, is German. The German tradition is rich in reflection on ugliness and the literary and artistic tradition is steeped in ugliness. So I, there was a certain fit there that made sense. And I have always been attracted to what I call great questions. Uh, that is uh, questions that are big in the sense of expansive, interdisciplinary, but also great in the sense that they're important, significant questions. And beauty is clearly a significant question and its relation to ugliness uh, even more so. And uh, I saw it as a fit uh, for my uh, Interest and uh, I didn't quite know where I would go when I started. And it took me some time to complete the book, I wrote some other books uh, in the interim while I was working on it, but uh, I'm very happy with the the result, uh, which looks at conceptual issues one needs to uh, understand before approaching the topic of ugliness, and then the history of ugliness in art and literature, which really hasn't been done outside of modernity. And finally, the uh, most original part is a analysis of forms of beautiful ugliness. How does ugliness contribute to the express- expressivity of art uh, in a positive way?
0: One, thank you. Uh, and I have to confess, uh, I... Did duet acting in high school. And so every time you say Rosencrantz, I want to follow up with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Um, But (laughs) not that I knew who Tom Stoppard was. There's a lot uh, of ugliness in Shakespeare. (laughs) Yes, that's true. Um, So uh, even as I um, uh, look at this, uh, uh, one of the things you mentioned, and it's kind of coming up here, you have this not very analyzed concept, this very important concept of ugliness. And one of the things you mentioned is that we really don't have a vocabulary to deal with um, the expanse of what ugliness covers. Can you talk a little bit about what may be a way forward uh, to increasing that vocabulary or, um, and why is that vocabulary important? Yeah,
1: so uh, for example, Uh, When I look at types of beautiful ugliness, uh, one type which is very common throughout the ages and was implicitly thematized already by Aristotle is the idea of taking as the subject matter something that is uh, repugnant, ugly, etc., but crafting a beautiful work where the properties of the work are beautiful. So it's a beautiful rendition of an ugly subject. And I call that repugnant beauty. Uh, That is something that uh, does repel some viewers because of the extent of the ugliness of the content. If you imagine uh, some some brutal scenes from war or from other intersubjective encounters, you can imagine people being turned away. Uh, Another form uh, I call fractured beauty. This is the opposite. Uh, Fractured beauty is when you have content that is innocuous uh, or even positive, and yet the formal rendition of that is disjointed, distorted, uh, in some way not harmonic. And if you think of Picasso's various renditions of Head of a Woman, whether it's in sculpture or painting, you have a woman who clearly does not look quite uh, realistic (laughs) And it is, uh, these are disjointed forms. And uh, we see some examples of it earlier. The 16th century, uh, Giuseppe Acimbaldo, a Viennese court painter, has uh, a number of works where he gives renditions usually of human figures, uh, but also other themes such as landscapes and seasons. And he makes it entirely out of objects uh, from nature. So for example, fruits and flowers or frogs or chicken legs or fish. And they're really quite funny. There is a playfulness uh, in Fractured Beauty where the artist is experimenting and trying to create something new and innovative and interesting. Uh, Another example of this distortion arises with um, Hans Holbein the Younger. He has a painting the ambassadors uh, from um, uh, around 1533, I think it is. And in this painting, you have two figures, one of, who paid, one of whom paid for the painting and a number of objects that represent uh, their scientific pursuits, their uh, traveling around the globe, etc. And in the middle front of the painting is a blob It simply looks ugly and distorted. You can't quite make out what it is. Well, once perspective is discovered, you can also play with the perspective and make it interesting. And you can only understand what is represented if you move to the side of the painting and look at it from that angle and you see a beautiful rendition of a skull. That is a kind of fractured beauty. Uh, The object is not necessarily negative. There are many beautiful renditions of a skull. But if you say, uh, well, I can fracture any kind of object and be playful in my representation of it, then you have fractured beauty. The third form that I want to bring into play here, and I won't won't bore the audience with many more forms right now, but just to give you an example of a language for understanding beautiful ugliness, uh, I call it iskric beauty. Iskros is the Greek word for ugliness. And what's interesting about it is that it's an ugliness of form and of content. So ice beauty is when you have an object that is ugly, and the form itself is also disjointed and ugly in some way. A Couple of examples. Uh, think of, uh, if you know it, Christoph Penderecki's uh, Threnody for the Victims of Hiroshima. The subject is clearly horrific. Uh, But the work is also formally horrific. Uh, You can, can find it in YouTube and play it and you won't last very long unless you have great stamina because it's unbearable to listen to. And he was thinking, he's not alone in this, that some objects are so ugly, so despicable that to render them with beautiful form would be inappropriate. Uh, and one wants to find a formal language, whether it's in music, or whether it's in, uh, with words or with paint, that does justice to the ugliness of the object. Uh, another example that, that many viewers and listeners would know is Picasso's Guernica. Uh, that was painted, uh, I think, around 37, after the Germans had bombed. Uh, the city of Guernica uh, uh, on market day in the afternoon, uh, horrific uh, devastation of civilians, uh, completely unwarranted uh, attack. And uh, the subject is clearly horrific, but the form is disjointed as well. So you have fragments of figures. Uh, It's not even clear what some of the figures are. It looks like Casso couldn't in some ways paint, couldn't draw, couldn't put his figures together, but he is trying to find a formal language that captures that ugliness. So you have, even though many thinkers will say the organic uh, harmony of form and content disappears from modernity, here you have on a meta level, a higher level, a harmony of form and content because the ugly content is captured through a distortion of form, a fragmentation of form that is appropriate to the ugliness of the content. And that's what I call ice beauty. So these are three different terms uh, that allow you to understand ugliness in the complex way in which form and content come together.
0: There's this really easy um, mistake to make of... Uh, Attaching interest to beauty, right? That anything that's beautiful is naturally interesting. Um, what role, uh, but that's not necessarily true, right? And I mean, that's part of what you're saying. What role does recognition play in interest? Um, and what role does uh, attraction play um, in in the ugliness? Yeah,
1: and that is a, a good question. Uh, Plato was the first philosopher to reflect on ugliness, and it, it may seem surprising because he is the philosopher of beauty. Uh, in the symposium, for example, Diotima preaches beauty as uh, that which attracts us, that which reveals truth, and and here already you have the harmony of truth, beauty, and goodness. But he also go ahead.
0: Well, I was going to say, I was going to say, but to be fair, his teacher was Socrates, who was famously ugly. So it was right yeah, in front of him. Yeah, right? <laughs> and that is another insight. That is
1: another insight of Plato's uh, that uh, there is not always a harmony of physical and spiritual. And that mm. is thematized uh, already in the Symposium, but elsewhere as well, that we have an ugly figure, as ugly as a satyr. Socrates, but he is spiritually beautiful, and that spiritual beauty is far more important than the physical. So it is creating a hierarchy of the spiritual and the physical that that very much matches uh, Plato's idealism. Another very rich insight of Plato's that has a certain contemporary relevance is that he distinguishes between an ugliness that is weak, which he calls the ridiculous, and Aristotle then uses that to say comedy is ugliness without pain, and an ugliness that is powerful, and that is horrific. So if you could imagine an authoritarian figure who wants to be powerful, but comes across in many ways as unappealing, ridiculous, stupid, uh, you might laugh at that figure. But once the authoritarian has access to power, it's no longer ridiculous, it's horrific. The consequences could be really brutal. So even though Plato doesn't reflect deeply on ugliness, he has these various insights. And even though he says in the symposium that we are deeply attracted to beauty and uh, that, that, that beauty, uh, in a sense, pulls us even out of our consciousness, he recognizes in A Republic Tomb uh, there is a character, Leontius, I think is his name, who is walking by uh, some corpses. An analogy, contemporary analogy would be you're driving and you see an accident. Most of the drivers will slow down to see what's wrong. But is this a disaster? Well, Leontius says, "I, my conscious brain knows that I should not be attracted to something that's ugly Uh, that is by definition unattractive. And yet his eyes take over his body. And even against his conscious attention, his eyes are drawn to the corpses. And a corpse is, of course, uh, a perfect embodiment of physical ugliness. Uh, So even against his conscious attention, he's attracted. There is a fascination that continues through the ages. Uh, In Paris, there were long lines uh, to go through. Uh, to see corpses uh, and uh, take a look at those various bodies. Um, And uh, it's something that uh, is certainly evident in a horror film. Uh, We are attracted to the suspense to really understand uh, the ways in which ugliness manifests itself, especially moral ugliness, Uh, but also a kind of emotional ugliness, when, when there is some sadness, when there's some agony, when there's some rage. That involves tension, and tension is attractive.
0: Hmm. It's interesting, as you even start off by um, shocking because it attracts and upsets. I was reminded uh, Stephen King, who's probably the most published author, uh, living author in our time, uh, in his book uh, or in his writing on writing, talks about he always tried for what he called the three types of terror, and he wanted like the highest psychological one where he didn't have to rely on any physical ugliness per se. Uh, and then there's horror, but then the last one, and from what people know of Stephen King, uh, he probably, he apparently did not achieve his high goals as much as he wanted, but he said, if I can't achieve the two higher versions of terror or horror, I always went at least for the gross out. Right. And, uh, that definitely, <laughs> you're like, when you said shocking because it attracts and upsets, um, I mean, we definitely see the the pull of that, right? Like it it's it's very, very popular. Um I wanted to ask you uh when you say uh the you know the title of the book, Beautiful Ugliness, Christianity, Christianity, Modernity, and Art, uh what do you mean by modernity in the title?
1: Yeah. Uh so I take modernity in the arts to be Uh, a movement that begins uh, in the early 19th century and takes us through uh, a transition to contemporary. Uh, So what is current now is perhaps not uh, easily absorbed uh, under uh, modernity, uh, but is uh, congruent with it. Um, And, German Romanticism would be one example where you have that attraction to the horror, the horrific, Etter Hoffmann would be a good example. And uh, the same time that Rosencrantz was writing his aesthetics of ugliness, Baudelaire was writing his poetry about carcasses and uh, negative subjects. He's a great example of repugnant beauty. Beautiful form, but horrific subjects. And uh, it took a long time for viewers to be comfortable, uh, with uh, this kind of ugliness. Uh, Gottfried Benn is one of the more famous German poets. And in 1912, he published a series of poems, Morgue and Other Poems. And these are about dead bodies uh, in the morgue. Uh, very beautiful poems on the formal level, but he dwells in the ugliness of the corpses, and what is seen uh, in the corpses, and the, the Reaction was that persons were grossed out. Uh, They found them, the critics found it absolutely horrific. Today we say, no, that's a signature element of modernity. That's just part of modernity. So it is a long period where there is more and more ugliness and an eventual acceptance of ugliness. Um, The Impressionists were described as ugly when they first uh, exhibited their works. Why? Because they weren't realistic in a traditional sense. They were deformed. We, of course, take them as beacons of beauty. If you go to the uh, Art Institute in Chicago, there are many more persons uh, viewing the Impressionists because they appear to them to be light-filled and beautiful and fewer in some of the contemporary areas or with someone like Ivan Albright who had very, very dark uh, paintings. It is ambiguous, this attraction to ugliness. It's there, but we're also attracted to beauty.
0: Uh, How much of this ugliness then, because I mean, and uh, there's a historical process at work here when you talk about the Impressionists, because they're some of my favorite painters. I would call them extremely beautiful, but they're considered ugly at first. How much of this ugliness is the evolution of taste and artists' pushing boundaries that we come to accept and how much of it is um, and what's the distinction between this kind of evolution of taste and for lack of a better term, but philosophically problematic, true ugliness? Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's a great question. Um, The there are really three, two, two prominent definitions of ugliness. One is that ugliness is the opposite of beauty. It is the most frequent one you hear. And it makes some It's commonsensical. On the other hand, if beauty and ugliness can be brought together, then it's not easy simply to see it as the opposite of beauty. The other common definition is that uh, ugliness is what we find repellent. Now, that also has some commonsensical appeal, but the problem with that, one of the problems with that definition is that, as you uh, noted in your question, What is repugnant to us shifts over time. So Picasso's Guernica was rejected for exhibition at uh, World Fair in 1937. Something else was substituted, a fairly kitschy work was substituted for it because it it seemed too shocking and grotesque. Now people have uh, Picasso as screensavers on their computers. It is accepted. There is an obvious shift over time. Um, And it's not only over time. Simultaneously, you have different receptions of objects that might or might might not be defined as ugly. An example would be photographs of lynchings. In the South, these were viewed as wonderful rituals and spectacles, representations of white nationalism and uh, Black uh, inferiority. In the North, they were found to be, rightly so, abject, ugly, horrific, uh, outrageous, and they motivated uh, 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 those who wanted to eradicate uh, injustice uh, uh, in the South. And then the question arises, Is, if ugly is what we find repellent, is the same object ugly and beautiful, depending on the reception? I would say no. I would say what we subsume under ugliness might shift, but ugliness is a concept that can be defined conceptually. So that what we subsume under ugliness shifts, but ugliness is stable. Concepts don't change over time. But what we subsume under the concept might change. And I view ugliness as, and this is a third definition that's not really that popular yet, but I view ugliness as, in a certain sense, a representation of something that contradicts the normative concept that belongs to that particular object. So I'll give you an example. We say... It belongs to our normative expectations for the human mind, what the human mind should be. It should be uh, listening, as you elevate in this podcast. It should be curious, uh, which would apply to the uh, listeners and viewers uh, of your uh, podcast and your show. Uh, And to the extent that information has been gleaned from such uh, shows, uh, the human mind should be knowledgeable. And that is a beautiful mind, to take it away from the film title. That is, the mind corresponds to the way the mind should be. Knowledgeable, curious, humble, in in, uh, embodying the virtue of good listening, uh, and uh, certainly eager to learn more and thus curious. Now, a figure who is, shall we say, arrogant, and so arrogant that they don't listen to others uh, and therefore end up being stupid and are not at all curious, that is a form of intellectual ugliness. Uh, A particular example, uh, since you mentioned Plato earlier, take uh, the early dialogue of Plato on piety, Plato's Euthyphro. Socrates encounters Euthyphro, who's on his way to a court to try his father for injustice and impiety. Socrates is quite surprised. That's a rather radical decision on his part. Uh, is Euthyphro confident that he has a, a good definition of piety? Euthyphro then goes through four different de- definitions of piety, each of which is refuted easily by Socrates. But Euthyphro doesn't recognize that he's wrong. And he flees the conversation because he... He doesn't want to be, to use a word that others might not use in this context, but Plato would, he doesn't want to be punished for having the wrong views, by having those ideas exposed as wrong. And so Euthyphro flees, he's not interested in the truth of piety, he's interested in holding on to his position, he's arrogant, he thinks he knows it still, that is intellectual ugliness. And part of uh, defining ugliness, uh, in the first third of my book, uh, I look at different Spheres in which we find ugliness. Physical ugliness is fairly obvious. Emotional ugliness is not talked about much. But uh, depression, rage, hostility that is unwarranted would be emotional ugliness. Then intellectual ugliness, and of course moral ugliness, and all of these can be subjects uh, of artworks.
0: Uh, even as you talk there, um, and I, this is to make sure I'm tracking with you. When you say that rage and depression are ugly, emo- forms of emotional ugliness, um, you would say that's generally speaking because uh, your definition of ugliness is that it doesn't match the normative. So in response yeah. to say a horrific incident, if someone weren't to show rage or depression, absolutely. that would actually be ugly, right? If, um, yeah, do I, am I understanding that, that correctly? That is
1: absolutely correct. If you, if you have lost your spouse and you are walking around joyfully, that is clearly <laughs> Yeah, that is ugly. That is not yep. how you should be reacting. And therefore, in this case, depression is absolutely appropriate. You have lost someone uh, that you supposedly love, and so one. We needs a certain nuance to understand what should or should not be ugly, uh, and uh, to give even more complexity to the puzzle. Uh, as you say in this example you should experience some ugliness because you are going through something that is very difficult. Well, uh, another example of ugliness uh, that is to some extent often overlooked is the crucifix. The crucifix, which represents a horrific uh, event, uh, the death of God, if you will, uh, was initially something that the Christians couldn't even present. There weren't images of the crucifix in the early centuries. You can imagine why. This was a sect trying to gain followers, and so they emphasized the triumph of God, the resurrection of God, etc. But it was only over time, and then especially at the end of the 10th century, beginning of the 11th century, that Christ was no longer emphasized as the victor uh, who's resurrected, but is a human being. The humanness of Christ was uh, emphasized. This is when the crash was, emph- was introduced. This is when we begin to emphasize uh, Mary as mother and Christ as child. We have more and more representations of the family. And then we see more and more representations of the crucifix. And some of them are absolutely horrific. And justly horrific because Christ became ugly in taking on our sins. So this is an ugliness that is, in a certain sense, fitting. And there are portrayals of the crucifix. Uh, For example, in Cologne, you can find uh, a so-called plague crucifix uh, where Christ looks horrific. Uh, His his ribs uh, are exposed. Uh, There is blood coming down his face, over his shoulder, the thorns are in his flesh. This is not the typical crucifix you see, but this was so that the viewers of Christ could identify with him in his suffering. And Christ became ugly not only, uh, according to the Christian thought of the time, because he was taking on the sins of humanity, but because he was the lowliest of the low. And because we could identify with Christ as the lowliest of the low, Christ became humble and that lifted up those who could identify with him. So there's a double movement. Christ becomes human and the lowliest of the low, but the lowliest of the low, at the time women, for example, those who were sick, those who were suffering, the poor, were ennobled. They gained dignity by being one with Christ. So this is a case where the ugliness is absolutely appropriate. And it would be a mistake for Christian art to jump over that and only give us kitschy uh, representations of the Christian narrative.
0: I, I think this is a, a great moment, and, or well, I'm, I'm jumping ahead and I could be wrong here, but it's, this seems like the moment to talk about dialectical beauty, right? Mm-hmm. Like even uh, one of the few times I've been able uh, to preach, I, I uh, preached uh, on the Valley of Dry Bones. And it's really interesting how many people did not understand how that passage works and it the ugliness of it is very obvious like when you when you sit down and think about what is being portrayed it's clearly some kind of either mass slaughter or battle scene because you have a mass grave, which I think is in many ways when you talk about modernity uh an important passage that we'd be able to reflect on uh, the horrors that we witnessed uh, through um, and the many genocides, the many uh, world wars, all these sorts of things, um, and the point at the end is that it is made beautiful through resurrection. But the, it, it, am I on the right track there when you talk about dialectical beauty? And is that kind of that movement with the crucifix?
1: Yeah, it is certainly um, uh, it's certainly the Christian narrative it right. involves an emergent immersion in ugliness. But the Christian has confidence to dwell, to linger in ugliness, because the Christian knows that is not the end of the story. There is yet another moment. There is the resurrection. And in the book, I describe that actually with a different term from Hegel. Uh, Hegel is not front and center in the book, in the sense that you have to be a philosopher to read the book. And my hope is that uh, simple uh, museum goers would find categories that are useful in the book. But uh, Hegel was my guiding force, and he uses the term speculative to describe a tension, a rupture, an ugliness that is gone through and in the end is left behind as a moment, Uh, a moment in the sense, uh, not a temporal moment, but a moment as an element, a part, that we retain in our memory, that we are cognizant of the whole time, but the narrative ends positively. And um, there was the idea in the earliest reflections on ugliness in modernity by uh, someone whose writings Hegel knew, G.E. Lessing, who wrote on Laocon, uh, the sculpture Laocon, And he argued that it's very difficult to portray ugliness in painting because it's a static art. Whereas in a temporal art like literature, you can present ugliness as a moment and then move beyond it to something else. And an interesting development in modernity is there is less desire to move beyond it. There is an abandonment of the Christian narrative. And therefore, Ugliness becomes even more prominent in painting because you can't get beyond it. So there are artworks that give us ugliness and make us linger in ugliness. Uh, we dwell in ugliness, if you will, and don't get beyond it. And then there are artworks uh, at the other extreme, I would say, that give us a moment of ugliness, but show it as something that can be overcome uh, through forgiveness, through development. Uh, Think of comedies that tend to have a happy end. There is some obstacle along the way that can be overcome. In between these two is what I call dialectical beauty. Uh, Dialectical beauty involves a prominent display of ugliness, but in such a way that we recognize the ugly as ugly. What do I mean by that? Think of satire as a form. The best theory of satire comes from Goethe's friend, Schiller. Schiller says, in satire, there is a break between the real and the ideal. And the artist, knowing that the real is not what it should be, not ideal, dwells on the real in order to show its inadequacies vis-a-vis the ideal. That is ugliness. And so satire dwells on ugliness, but it doesn't just show it, it criticizes it. It exaggerates it. It rebels against it. Uh, It revolts against it. It wants to show the ugliness as ugly. And it's interesting that satire is not a genre that exists in ancient Greece. It is invented in imperial Rome. Why is it invented then? Because there is a movement away, the the Greeks certainly had ugly (laughs) moments, the monsters uh, that are portrayed in Hesiod and Homer, the suitors who are morally ugly, whom Odysseus must uh, overcome, uh, various elements of ugliness are prominent in antiquity. Oedipus Rex. Oedipus Rex, think about the the blood coming from the eyes or the stench from Philoctetes' wound. There is much ugliness in uh, ancient Greece, but it is also balanced by ideal moments of beauty. And uh, it would be wrong to neglect those ugly moments, but it would also be wrong to say ugliness was the dominant motif in ancient Greece. But as we become more and more realistic in imperial Rome, and then take it even further, and are obsessed with the moral depravity and ugliness of the world, satire becomes an entirely new form. And satire wants to present ugliness and criticize ugliness. It is dialectical in the sense that it doesn't give us the harmony, but it recognizes the inadequacy of the first moment, the ugliness. So dialectical beauty is a portrayal of the ugliness of the ugly. And we see much of that in modernity too. Think of uh, artists like George Gross or Otto Dix who portray the ugliness of the Germans uh, in a movement that follows expressionism, new objectivity or new matter-of-factness. And uh, this is, I think, a common motif in modernity. Uh, and uh, satire captures a certain kind of ugliness.
0: Um, well, there's a couple directions I wanna go. I mean. First is, I mean, if I understand correctly, like satires, like as a a genre, is really invented with Juvenal, correct? Which is yeah, Juvenal is the
1: third prominent Roman satirist, uh, but it is absolutely true uh, that Juvenal has mainly been called, often been called, the greatest of the satirists. Got it. Uh, And he he is certainly the most brutal. Uh, in portraying the depravity uh, of his age. Uh, and indignation is the dominant motif of most of his works. And that is, in fact, I would say, one of the dominant motivations for ugliness, to be obsessed with the negative negativity of one's own age, to want to criticize it and attack it. So you could imagine Goya on war or... Um, uh, some of the, the narratives of World War One uh, remarks all quiet on the Western Front. These are examples of dialectical beauty, where the ugliness of the ugly is shown, and so that satire becomes not just a written form, but a broader concept that captures this critique of ugliness. And uh, that is the dominant. Uh, mode of dealing with ugliness for the Hegelians. Rosenkrantz, for example, elevates, uh, uh, elevates the idea of overcoming ugliness through comedy, making fun of that which is ugly. And satire does the same thing. So you're absolutely right. Juvenal is a great satirist. And it was in Rome that satire becomes prominent. So this particular form of ugliness. And Moral revolt is the the dominant motif. You could say Guernica is not a satire uh, because it's not focused on the perpetrators of violence. But you could say it is a reverse image of satire. It is dwelling on the victims of horror. And so the perpetrators are implicit but the motivation here doesn't seem to be only moral revolt. It's also empathy with those who suffer. And empathy with those who suffer is another kind of ugliness. It is trying to draw us in to see what is lost from, uh, from war, from horror, from moral ugliness. And that, that dwelling on the victims is another lens onto ugliness.
0: Um, I'm immediately reminded, I don't know if you've seen Grave of the Fireflies, but um, uh, I believe e, uh, Roger Ebert called it one of the greatest anti-war films. It's uh, mm-hmm. it's animated, but it's um, uh, World War II, it uh, it's, follows two orphans through the firebombing uh, of the cities there. And so it does mm. not dwell on the perpetrators really at all on either side, but just follows the, the two orphans and just, their horrific plight throughout um and uh it, one of the best movies i've ever watched and um uh, on the other hand it's one of it's a movie i never want to see again um <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, if that's if that's fair and it's just there's that mixture of um uh you can't look away you also uh are just appalled yeah
1: and and this is an interesting case where normally we think of the triad of beauty Goodness and truth. But if we really want to understand war, then beauty is not the right form. Ugliness is a witness to truth. And if we want to be truthful, we must dwell on the ugliness. And we cannot, as in previous eras, uh, let's say before Goya, only focus on the heroes of war. We also have to look at the victims. And here, Truth becomes a way of motivating ugly content and often ugly forms. And that is a, that is a twist. That is a different way of understanding ugliness, that it, it really contributes to one of the triads. It contributes to truth, and it, of course, contributes to goodness by reflecting on moral ugliness.
0: Uh, you actually had a, a line that I wanted to ask you about at the very beginning of your book, um, that uh, people flee ugliness because of their unwillingness to face, to confront, mm. unwillingness to confront yeah. reality. Um, and uh, the, what what are uh, the good parts of uh <laughs> of, do you think that we can be too fascinated with ugliness, and do you think that yeah, there are, yeah. uh, there's a weakness to being unwilling to face uh, what is real? Yeah,
1: there is clearly a weakness in being unable to face reality. Uh, if we have only escapist literature and art, we are truncating the realm of possible art, and we are not understanding our age or the moral atrocities of our age. On the other hand, if we have only a dwelling in ugliness without thinking through alternatives, as is the case, say, in speculative beauty, then we have again truncated uh, the possibilities for art. And in fact, uh, we are limiting the imagination to think through how we might overcome ugliness. What are the the virtues that would allow us to combat evil and ugliness. So someone like Hitchcock is always portraying moral ugliness, but he almost always ends with some gesture to a happy end. They are not kitschy, happy ends in almost all cases. They are simply gestures. How might we combat ugliness? What could help us overcome ugliness? And uh, one of the, uh, you asked, one of your first question was about terminology. And uh, Ice Creek beauty is a neologism uh, that I think is helpful for people who want to understand uh, beautiful ugliness. There's another neologism in the book, and I'll uh, tie it together with your last question. If art is so obsessed with ugliness and brackets beauty as being a legitimate form of art in any way, one of the problems is if we accept that beauty is almost a human need, or is a human need, then viewers who see only ugliness and are repelled, or let's say, the art is so difficult to comprehend. Uh, Schoenberg liked atonal music because dissonance is harder to comprehend. And a lot of ugly art is difficult beauty. It's difficult to comprehend. So if your average person is repelled by ugliness and by difficult beauty, where do they turn? If they have this longing for beauty, they tend to turn to kitsch. Kitsch is ugliness as beauty, <laughs> as Adorno uh, once says. It, is, it appears to be beautiful, but it, it lacks depth. It is sugary, sweet, superficial. We are attracted to kitsch, but kitsch is not true art. It is not beautiful art. The opposite of kitsch is quatsch. Q-U-A-T-S-C-H, quatsch, like kitsch, is a German word, and quatsch in German means nonsense or bullshit uh, with regard to spoken language. And I appropriate the concept to refer to art that is ugly but lacks deeper meaning. And as artists begin to think, well, I'm going to be true to ugliness or true to the formal possibilities of ugliness, I don't care if there's an audience or not. Uh, Milton Babbitt, for example, a composer once wrote an essay on why we don't need an audience. Uh, The composer should create a work and it doesn't care if there's an audience. And there are some artists who create works that I would say are self, often self-reflexive, uh, usually ugly, that lack aesthetic merit. There's no depth to it, but they want to shock or create something chaotic and call it art. And I say, viewers should have the courage to say, no, that's not art. That's not great art. That's quatsch, Kitch and quatsch. So one example would be, it's a funny story. In 2001, Damien Hurst, put together an installation for a gallery in London. And the installation included a number of half filled uh, coffee cups, some empty beer bottles, uh, a ladder, some uh, newspapers on the floor, some candy wrappers, uh, a paintbrush, uh, etc. And uh, that evening, after it was installed, uh, a cleaning man walked through the gallery and threw it all into trash bins, completely eliminated uh, the exhibit. And he was interviewed afterwards. And he said, well, it didn't look much like art to me. I thought it was garbage. So I put it all in the trash can. And It's a a funny example where the average person looks at something and says, you know, that is is simply not uh, art. It is not great art. And so there can be an ugliness, that is not combined with beauty. And we should have the courage to call it out.
0: Yes, even as uh, I think about what we struggle with in our contemporary times and through modernity, um, you've talked about self-reflection, ugliness, technology, and industrialization. Um, uh, As you were talking earlier, I thought one of my favorite authors, Franz Kafka, obviously uh, embodies a lot of that. And, uh, if we, but if we live too long in, um, in this kind of alienation, uh, we are stuck living as victims, which I think is kind of this idea. And it's something that we see, um, well, there's a, there's a lot, uh, about the connections between, uh, our current society and mental illness, right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, um. What do you see in terms of, do you see uh, that kind of crotch, uh, kvatch, if I'm saying that right, um, the, as, uh, as maybe a symptom, but maybe also as root, probably some kind of cyclical nature there in, in regards to uh, some of the ills of our society?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I would say someone like Kafka. Uh, was very attuned to the ills of his society, the alienation felt by uh, persons in a bureaucratic system or uh, in uh, relationships uh, that were uh, clearly not loving relationships. But he also had the foresight to anticipate authoritarian rule. If you think, for example, of the trial where reasons are not given, uh, but uh, the person is nonetheless uh, arrested, etc. That. Attentiveness to the emotional ugliness of the age, the moral ugliness of the age, uh, is something that uh, art should explore. And uh, it should explore uh, mental illness. It should explore uh, the various catalysts for crises of the age and how they work themselves out in human beings. Uh, But um, if we have only Kafka, then my fear is that we will dwell in uh, this world without thinking of alternatives. Now, Kafka may not be the best example because um, I had a funny anecdote. Uh, I was an undergraduate in Germany and uh, uh, 20 of us went to see uh, Orson Welles' version of the trial. And, I was the only person in an audience of about 60 people, 40 Germans, 20 Americans, who was laughing, constantly laughing. And my American undergraduate friends were really upset with me. I was the ugly American, if you will, uh, who should not be laughing at such a serious uh, film. And uh, I went home that night and uh, opened uh, uh, Kafka's The Trial and read the preface by Max Brod. And Max Brod said Kafka could not get through two or three lines of the trial without laughing out loud hysterically. So (laughs) Kafka himself has a certain ambiguity. On the one hand, he portrays this ugliness in a serious way, you're really gripped by it and you understand the crises and the integration of technology, for example, in the penal colony, the self-reflection and almost all Kafka tales and the ugliness, you are gripped by it. At the same time, Kafka in my eyes is showing the ugliness of this reality. So he is distancing himself and the comic, the absurd, is simultaneously there. Both moments are present in Kafka. So Kafka doesn't give us answers. They're almost no answers, even hints of answers, but he is quite clear about what is untenable. And that is progress beyond wallowing in negativity. Uh, but as I say, one thing agra- about uh, beauty that is great is that one form of beauty does not exclude another. And uh, we still have works that portray what I call speculative beauty, but they so often fall into kitsch. And I would challenge artists uh, to give us speculative beauty, uh, perhaps gestures uh, that take us beyond the ugliness without falling into kitsch. That is perhaps a form uh, that has existed throughout time. Uh, You mentioned Oedipus, Oedipus at Colonus, Uh, is an example of speculative beauty. Oedipus is able to challenge uh, the guilty verdict. Uh, He himself becomes a demigod at the end. He experiences a a moment of of love with Antigone and uh, friendship uh, with uh, 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 the the leader. And that moment of beauty uh, is certainly not kitsch. And it's not kitsch because the ugliness was so severe, because he suffered so much along the way, because it's so subtle, uh, uh, the resolution, and that requires really a great artist.
0: Uh, and even as you mentioned uh, Kafka and the the laughing at the trial, which I uh, would not have guessed, <laughs> the um, it makes me want to read it. Yeah, the. Uh, uh, again, um and so as, as we talk about you, you mentioned earlier there's this connection between comic and ugliness, or at least the Hegelian yeah. disciples thought so yeah. um does some of that come from the play back and forth between beauty and ugliness
1: uh, I'm not sure uh yeah, in a sense uh if yeah, I would put it this way, the Hegelians yeah. said that ugliness should be, should be integrated into art. It should not be excluded because art should deal with the full universe of meaning in this world. But ugliness, for the Hegelians, should never represent the whole. It should be a vanishing moment. It should be present. There should be something beyond ugliness. And they, therefore, very clearly saw an asymmetry between beauty and ugliness. You could have beauty without ugliness, but not ugliness without beauty. And uh, they felt that beauty arose when the ugliness of the ugly was revealed. So obscenities, for example, could only be freed through the comic, through exaggeration. Uh, Think of uh, representations of Priapus with the, the phallic representing a size that's twice his body. That is funny. That is a way to make fun of uh, the obscene. Uh, and uh, Aristophanes is really great in this regard. Uh, he, he has, a, a, the, the uh, uh, in the clouds, for example, the father uh, has debts and uh, he's worried about paying the debts. And he says, well, perhaps, I could commit suicide, and that I wouldn't have to pay my debts. Well, that is an example of intellectual ugliness. It's not really thought through, but it's funny because it's so absurd. Uh, it, it's not a position that is in any way tenable, but it's shown to be untenable. And that is funny. Uh, so right. uh, Aristophanes is able to show the ugliness of intellectual ugliness, and that becomes beauty. And that is how beauty emerges out of ugliness. It's, it's the same way in which we mentioned earlier Plato. When Plato wants to uncover truth, he shows fallacies and he reveals uh, the, wrong, the wrongness of false positions. Euthyphro's false ideas are refuted. So we come to truth by way of refuting falsehoods or fallacies. We understand goodness in its depth when we understand how we can fight evil. Naive goodness is not going to get you very far. You need to know under what conditions you can combat evil without yourself increasing evil. So the idea of just war, for example, needs to reflect deeply on uh, evil in order to come to what is goodness. And here's the, the amusing thing. Studies of truth deal with falsehood, studies of goodness uh, deal with evil, but studies of beauty have neglected ugliness. And that is is a gap uh, that um, has rarely been addressed. Uh, If you think between Rosencrantz and uh, today, there aren't a lot of uh, books that try to understand the richness of ugliness, uh, integrating various examples and categories, etc. And that,
0: that is a gap. Um, I want to be respectful of your time, but I, I did want to follow up. Um, to as you talk about speculative beauty, um, and you talk about, like for instance, the Christian idea of like immersing yourself in ugliness but coming out to mm-hmm. really salvation. Like that story is yeah. is salvation to go from ugliness to beauty what is the the story called what is the journey in uh, in comedy is it absurdity or what would be that of like uh, the ugliness taken too far so taken so far that it becomes beautiful if that makes sense yeah uh,
1: I, I would say what you need in comedy and Aristotle would say this is some element of ugliness uh, but that ugliness cannot be so painful, so hurtful, that uh, you can't laugh at it. So for example, uh, imagine a slapstick scene where uh, one character is hitting the other over the head with a stick. Well, in the comedy, the person is not really hurt. We are playing uh, with this. We are laughing at it. We are distant from it because there is no pain. So I would say comedy requires some element of ugliness. Uh, Goldoni, for example, has a play called The Liar. Uh, And The Liar is constantly inventing stories, has really great imagination. You almost have to love this character, how he gets out of one situation after another by inventing lies. Eventually, uh, those lies will be revealed as lies, and the false character will be rejected, and the happy end excludes uh, that particular character, but no one is hurt from the lies. Uh, the marriage uh, of persons who should not be together is never consummated. Uh, so I go back to Aristotle here, who I who I believe borrows from this early insight of Plato's that uh, ugliness can be weak or strong. The weak ugliness is ridiculous, and a weak ugliness is one that causes no pain. So comedy is some negative trait, maybe it's arrogance, stubbornness, uh, lying, not even knowing uh, who you are, uh, 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 following the wrong person, I think of Midsummer Night's Dream, that needs to be corrected, that needs to be overcome in some way, so that you either have the critique of the negative figure or the figure who is in some kind of intellectual mm, mistake, Uh, is guided toward some element of harmony. So you can't really have comedy without some element of ugliness, but that element of ugliness is not the serious ugliness that, let's say, in Christianity plays such a dominant role in portrayals, uh, let's say, in Dante of the Inferno or of Bosch of the Last Judgment. These do not lend themselves to comedy in our everyday sense, although Dante's is, of course, called the comedy, uh, because it goes through negativity and ugliness to a resurrection. But what we're thinking about in terms of film and drama, uh, it can't really be so horrific uh, that we are turning away. So there is the superficial limited concept of comedy what's allowed in a particular work and a metaphysical concept of comedy that's another reason to integrate ugliness what role does ugliness play in the universe so so goethe's faust which is really the modern work uh, that captures uh, humanity the way dante captures humanity for the middle ages in the preface uh, the prologue uh, in heaven mephisto the ugly character appears in a congenial conversation uh, with God. Uh, because God knows that the ugly Mephisto, the negative Mephisto, has a role to play in the universe. Otherwise, humans become too, um, too lethargic. Uh, uh, there's a great line, des Menschen Tätigkeit kann also leicht like erschlafen. Er liebt sich bald die unbedingte Ruhe. So that's the German, of, a beautiful German of Goethe. He's basically saying, um, human beings can become all too lethargic. Therefore, I invite the negative spirit of Mephisto to keep human beings striving and acting. He has a role to play in the universe. And ugliness is not only something uh, that we should exclude and fear, and flee from, it is something that we should think through, linger with, until we understand its various elements.
0: Um, You remind me, uh, my middle child, uh, his brain just works very differently, and I love that about him. And uh, he came up to me and I was talking to my brother. He said, would you like to hear a joke? And we're like, yeah. And uh, he said, "Uh, this huge object comes out of the sky and smashes me flat on the street. (laughs) Ha 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 dies laughing and we look at each other and we're like, uh so weird joke, buddy. And then all of a sudden I looked at my brother, I was like, it's Looney Tunes. That's what it is. As he had been watching Looney Tunes, uh, and in Looney Tunes really no did. one Yes, yeah. in Looney Tunes yeah. no one actually yeah. gets hurt. Uh, yeah. Which of course, yeah. what I need to explain to him is please don't try this at home, right? Like that's <laughs> the distance. <laughs> but the yeah. That's why Looney Tunes is funny because, you know, they may walk around, you know, Daffy Duck gets shot in the face, but his beak just goes around and he snaps it right back.
1: Absolutely. And and of of
0: course, kids find that funny because, you know, um, I remember watching America's Funniest Home Videos with my family when I was younger and I thought they're hilarious watching people get hurt. And then I watched it with my kids for the first time like a year or two ago. And I was like, this is not funny anymore. I've seen people. Yeah. It's just a different thing. Um, but I, I, one, I want to say thank you so much for uh, coming on the show today. If you could leave our audience with, uh, one thing to really think on or chew on for the next week after listening to this episode, what would it be?
1: Yeah, Uh, I would say, uh, don't flee from ugliness, understand that ugliness is a fascinating phenomenon and try to understand ugliness. There are ways in which ugliness can be presented meaningfully. There are categories uh, that you can employ in order to understand the different ways in which ugliness contributes to meaning. And uh, we can't have uh, a resolution unless we've gone through ugliness. Uh, So it's a necessary element uh, of life and uh, uh, an attractive element of art. Uh, but if you have a certain confidence in the categories you employ, uh, then you can see a work and say, that is, that is beautifully organically done. That is ice cream beauty. And another work uh, that seems to me to be quatsch. I don't see yes. I need someone to explain to me, what is the greatness of taking a banana and putting it uh, on a museum wall by duct tape, uh, that strikes me as quatsch. And we should have confidence to call that out, uh, to see whether someone can truly defend that as beautiful ugliness.
0: Uh, Dr. Roach, it's been an absolute honor today. Thank you for coming on.
1: It's been fun. Thank you so
0: much.